It's a pleasure to be back with you today. My name is Gary, and uh, uh, Levi's asked me to sub in today, so it's a great honor. Uh, just as we're getting started, I'd, I'd love it if you turn to Psalm 111 in your Bibles. That's where we're landing today. We're going to answer a couple questions. Um, you know, I think when sometimes when you're preparing uh, a message, um, you know, you, especially if you feel like you maybe has a, have a sense of humor, you think you should bring some props up here. And we're, we're in the summer Psalms, and I thought, you know, maybe a coconut with some, you know, and I should be wearing like a banana shirt and something low cut, right? Like, because we're in the summer Psalms, right? Um, but really the prop I need today is a mirror, and, and I did forget it. I did plan to have it, because I need to hear what's being preached, right? Like, some of the stuff that we hear in God's Word is a little hard to take sometimes, and uh, I, I don't know if you guys appreciate it, but like, Levi often says it, I, I certainly feel it. Like, we, we're, we're, we're talking to ourselves as a preacher, and we're talking to you, because we're all in the same boat. None of us have arrived. None of us are perfect. And I think that's a good place to start. And if I ever do this, that's my mirror, okay? That's my, Gary, you knucklehead, listen to God, right? Okay, so that's the, that's the thing. I wish I had the full-on thing, but yeah. All right, well, we're, I hope you're getting close to Psalm 11 if you haven't found it. But the Psalms are a beautiful book of the Bible. Uh, I don't know about you, but back in the day, I got a little red uh, New Testament with the Psalms, right? Even the Gideons know that this book is precious, right? And uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of the great German theologians, he calls it the prayer book of the Bible. And he does that because of the contents of the, the book of Psalms. They're written to God, right? They're addressing him in holiness and in praise. But they're written for us. We learn good prayer through the Psalms. We learn appropriate worship in the Psalms. And we learn how to address God. We learn to cry out in anguish, we learn to weep, and we learn to sing. We learn to mourn and celebrate. And apart from the Lord's Prayer itself, it's the best coach to sound prayer. We would do well to imitate them. The other thing I love about the Psalms is they're, they're always double-pronged. They're, they're uh, aesthetic, they're beautiful, but they're also pedagogical, they teach. Okay, and that's especially true about Psalm 111 today. I mean, when we think of uh, Psalm 23, it's beautiful. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. I got two sheep now as of a couple days ago. I get up in the morning, and they're running around the yard. I I didn't know this, but like a 70-pound sheep uh, can get through a chicken door. Uh, to my surprise, I go to let them out, and there they're running around. It's a beautiful image. It's, it's gorgeous aesthetic. Or how about Psalm 139? You knit me together in my mother's womb, and I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. How many, how many moms and dads out there, we re- maybe read that as a teenager, and you're like, oh, that's so sweet. And then you hold your baby, and it's a different order of magnitude, right? The Psalms are beautiful. They are, but they also teach. Particularly true in Psalm 111. Most commentators think that this was part of some sort of curriculum. It's based in the the wisdom literature, um, and it's structured for us to memorize easily, or at least for a Hebrew to memorize easily. It was an alphabetical psalm. So that's, uh, I think we call it acrostic if we're using our special English words, right? So that's where each letter 
uh, of the Hebrew alphabet, that's the first letter of, the, of that verse of the psalm. And that would help with memorization. And so I think that that's another indication that, that this, is a, this is a teaching psalm. This is a teaching psalm. So what are we going to learn from it? Well, I can speak for myself. Over the course of the pandemic, in the last six months in particular, um, I've had to look to things like Psalm 111. And, and I, it's, a, it's a endeavor, it's a discipline of trying to remember, remind myself who God is. And I think that's a natural consequence of when we're, we're struggling, when we're hitting hard times, when we're depressed, when we're anxious, suffering from indecision, uncertainty, hardship. The believer naturally sits back and has to ask themselves, usually, or fall, better yet, fall to your knees and ask yourself, who is this God in whom I trust? Is he who he says he is? Why do I trust him? Is he mighty to save? And Psalm 111 helps us answer that. So draw near, press in, let's encounter the word of the Lord. Psalm 111, great are the Lord's works. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright, in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious, merciful. Anybody know where that line comes from, by the way? This isn't in the, in the manuscript, but it's too good to pass up. It's from Exodus chapter 34. Remember, Moses is up on the mountain, and he's saying, God, show me your glory. And God says, I can't, you'll die. But how about this? I'll tuck you in this little rock, and I'll walk by, and you'll just see the back of the train of my robe. And in that encounter, God introduces himself. It's like his business card. He says, this is what I'm about. And he says, this is what it says in, Psalm 30, uh, in, sorry, in Exodus 34, 6. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed. So this is his introduction of who God is. The Lord, the Lord, and that's capital L-O-R-D. That means Yahweh. Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's our God. I think we, we should see that in our psalm. All right, the next verse. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He's shown his people the power of his works and in giving them an inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people and he's commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And all those who practice it have good understanding. His praise endures forever. This is the word of the Lord. All right. So we said it's an acrostic poem. So is the next door neighbor, actually, number 112. They're, in many ways, fraternal twins. This psalm talks about God, and Psalm 12, 112 talks about the man who fears the Lord. I think that'd be a good homework for you to go home and and read that psalm and see how it relates to 111. But let's, let's zoom in here. We're going to answer two questions of the text today. Who is this God in whom I trust? And then how do I respond 
properly to him. What does this reveal to us about God? So, who is the God in whom we trust? I think, obviously, we need to see, number one, that he's a creator. Look at verse 2, 3, and 4. The great are the works of the Lord. Full of splendor and majesty is his work. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. In fact, the ESV translates five times uh, Hebrew words uh, and, and just says works. Okay? And, and we're to get sort of two senses out of that. The idea that God is the creator, his creative works, then also God's redemptive works. Okay? And we're going to flesh both of those out. But let's zoom in on the, the creative works right now. We, we sing songs like, All thy works shall play, praise thy name in earth and sky and sea. Holy, 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 right? Didn't we just sing that? Right? I think we did. I don't know. I was distracted. We had, uh, I have a little guy there and running around. It's hard to worship then. But what I want us to see, look, his creative works display his majesty. This is like my native language, right? Like, born to speak this way. I'm a, I love to geek out on stuff like, you know, geology, cosmology, human biology, like all the ologies, I just, I, I love it. It speaks to who I am. That's the way God's wired me. And, and it brings me to a position of awe before the Lord. It's, it's the way I worship him, plain and simple. And, and I'd, I'd love to draw you into that if, if I may. For example, just pick one thing that's topical in the news right now. Anybody know what's going on with NASA? And no, it's not a dad joke, NASA. You know, what's the news with NASA? Okay, I'll give you a dad joke about NASA. How does NASA organize a party? They plan it. That's delicious, eh? That's delicious. Oh, I love it. Okay, the James Webb Space Telescope. Who's heard of this thing? Like $13 billion to make. It's this giant telescope. The wings fold out. They had to figure out ways of origamiing the things together and whatever. It is an incredible piece of human engineering, and it's designed to look far, far back into the past of the universe. And right now, its most significant image is a retake of something called the Hubble Ultra Deep Field View. And what this is, is they decide that let's look at the most empty part of the sky and see what's there. What a cool experiment. With the Hubble Space Telescope, they they left the exposure on for 13 and a half days. I don't know if that's a long shutter, right? And the area that the image with this James Webb telescope is the size of a grain of sand held at arm's length. Okay, so it's tiny. How many grains of sand at arm's length could you fill your field of view in? Like bajillions, right? And we only got half the world, by the way, the other half of the world, right? Like there's two hemispheres. So imagine the entire sky, southern and northern hemisphere. There's all these little grains of sand. We're just going to image one, and what do we find? Not just a couple galaxies, not hundreds, but thousands of galaxies in this tiny, tiny, tiny area. We have no idea how big the universe is, how many billions of billions of billions of created elements sit in this thing. In that single image, there's over a thousand galaxies, and in each one of those galaxies, there's over a billion stars. Like a million is an unbelievable number. I'd like to have a million dollars, wouldn't you? Right? Then I could buy a llama. Haven't you always wanted a llama? Or I'd buy me a fur coat, but not a real fur coat, because that's cruel, right? Like, you, 
a million is big, right? Like a million is huge. It, it would take you 13 days, 13.7 days actually, to count to a million if you're going one, two, three, and no sleep, okay? 13 days. How long would it take you to count to a billion? 31 years! Years! A billion is huge. And, and in this tiny area of sky, there's, a, there's thousands of stars with billions of suns in it. That blows my mind. And it should blow yours too. Listen to what the word of the Lord says. By the word of the Lord, of Yahweh, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host, all the stars. Host means stars there. There they are. Isaiah reminds us, lift up your eyes and see who created all of these. Who brings out their host by number? Who brings out the stars by number? One by one, calling them each by name. By the greatness of his might, because he is strong in power. Not one. Not one is missing. And if you follow Isaiah 40, you'll, say, you'll, you'll come across the verse that says, So Israel, how can you complain that I don't know your ways? Believer, how, how can you complain in the face of this truth? The God who's numbered every star in the universe, names them, doesn't know what's going on in your life. Crazy. But, but God just doesn't name the stars, right? He conceived in his mind and brought into existence by his breath each one of them. And so we fall on our knees and we say, great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. I mean, scientists, they pride themselves. They say, oh, yeah, I discovered gravity. I've discovered gravity, too. Or I've discovered general relativity. You know, and, and Newton and Einstein, they are the pinnacle human minds. And all their theories are based upon the shoulders of all these other theories and all these other great people. And it's the height of human intellect. That's true. And and. I love these guys. I geek out about them. I admire them. But ultimately, big hairy deal. God conceived of, authored all of these natural laws. And then he didn't stop there. He doesn't write it on a chalkboard. He brings it into being physically in the universe because of the power of his might. You know what humanity can only describe over centuries of combined human knowledge? We, and, and we still can't come up with a unified theory of physics that unites uh, uh, Einsteinian relativity and gravity with quantum physics. We still can't do that yet. We're not smart enough. But God's not only smart enough, he executes it. He puts it out there in the physical world. This should lead us to a conclusion that God's intellect and his capacity are so exalted, so massive, so imaginative, that if we pause and we're still, we'd truly be terrified of his mind. But here's the deal. God's staggering, unestimatable intellect and foresight and goodness doesn't apply merely to mapping out the physical universe and physical laws. God also provides us with good moral laws. Verse 7. All his precepts are trustworthy. They're established forever. 
That word precept means law, commandment, mandate. And Psalm 111 reminds us that our Father in heaven, God, gives good, good, good household rules. Rules designed to keep you and others safe. Who has that Max Licato book? Okay, we read this one to our kids all the time. It's part of the Family Foundation's curriculum, right? Rules designed to keep you and others safe. Rules designed to result in blessing. God's not a crotchety holdout. His precepts are trustworthy. They're true. Listen to what King David says about God's precepts. This is Psalm 1. one uh, sorry, this is Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by keeping them is your servant warned, and in keeping them, there's great reward. Brothers and sisters in Christ, Psalm 111 and Psalm 19 are reminding us that God is a loving Father, giving healthy boundaries, willingly educating his children, lighting the way to blessing for them. So if you're distressed, if life your way is just not working out, look to his law. Psalm 119 says, through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I find it fascinating that we respect physical laws like gravity. Just in this gym alone, I have to respect F, the force of gravity, equals G, the gravitational universal constant, times M1, times M2, which is the ground, divided by the distance between a squared. And I'm learning that the force that I generate is not enough to, like, stuff Josiah anymore, right? I can't get it. And the force of gravity propels me to the ground and separates my shoulder when I'm trying to get past Josh. Or was it Matt? I can't remember. One of you tricksters tripped me, I bet. <laughs> right? Like, I have to respect gravity. We don't jump out of barns. We don't jump out of planes without parachutes. We respect the physical laws. Right? Like, just to go back to basketball, when Andrew Turan is coming down the lane, my boys are like, hmm, rho equals m times v. He's moving fast. He has a lot of m, a lot of mass. I'm getting out of the way. Momentum is not my friend here. Right? We respect the physical laws. But we ignore God's moral laws. And the consequences are just as terrible. You know, I had picked out three societal issues right now. Marriage and family commitment, gender and all the gender confusion and sanctity of life, so abortion and euthanasia. And I had prepared some really sort of polemical statements. They're all true, okay? Like, did you know that children that grow up in households without fathers have more criminality, more child abuse, more perceived abandonment, more more attachment issues, more dysfunction with attachment, more gang involvement, mental health issues, poor school performance, poverty, homelessness. That's true. Kind of polemic, though. Let's just smash it, right? 
or the gender confusion landscape, you know, where transgender teens are, are committing suicide at alarming rates. That's true. That data is from the Canadian Medical Journal. But I think what's missing, if I just throw out these polemic arguments that you're all going to agree with because you're all Christians, is that these are terribly complicated issues. Okay, like let's take the abortion issue. Like, I do not know what it's like to be in an environment where I can hardly feed myself and I'm scared every day and I've got a baby coming that's not wanted. I, I don't know what that is like. That is a complicated, wildly complicated scenario. I don't know what it's like to be born with a sexual preference that is not what is normal. And I believe that, that some people are born that way. It's a wildly complicated thing. And for us to just throw polemic arguments, I think, is unhelpful. It is complicated. And so then I ask you, why do we ignore the wisdom of the Most High God then? Like, we're not going to figure this out, okay? Like, take the gender thing again. So we've got uh, an absolute social uh, epidemic of gender confusion, right? And this is, this is just accelerating. There's a social contagion element of this. This is that people are catching it. We can calculate an R naught. Like, I don't know if you've seen the movie Contagion. They say R naught. That's the reproductive number, the doubling number that you heard about in the news with COVID, right? Oh, the doubling number is 2.4. Oh, it's 4.8. And then we put on, yeah. Like, there's a doubling number with transgenderism and cutting. Like, these are socially contagious phenomenon. It's complex. But we can't look to us to solve this stuff. You know what we're doing? You know what my profession is doing? We're advertising on TikTok with little hashtags says, delete the teat. Hashtag, yeet the teat. On Instagram, on TikTok, plastic servants advertising to minors. That's happening today. That's what my profession is doing with their wisdom. Really? Like the, shocking doesn't even get at it. Stupid doesn't even get at it. How can a child make these decisions that are permanent? I, I was talking to Jill Kohler. She says, you know, like a 13-year-old can't even get a tattoo. But, but we're letting this stuff go on? We have no idea what the consequences of these actions are. And, and I see some people are a little uncomfortable. Well, here's some more uncomfortable. I've said this to about four people in my life. So here you go. Internet, love you. I came from a loving home. I came from careful parents who loved me. Okay, this is not a shot on my parents or anything. But they were uncomfortable talking about some stuff. I didn't get the appropriate warnings about sleepovers and all that crap, okay? And I had a sleepover when I was 10. My friend had an older brother, and his older brother had exposed this guy to all kinds of stuff. And so when he had a sleepover with me, he invited me into touching. And me not knowing what to do, not being, having warned, didn't know, thought, okay, well, whatever, I guess this is what people do at sleepovers, I don't know. Imagine if that happened today. 
If I, if I was born today with that same scenario, I have four children. I have a wife I love deeply, and I speak about her all the time from the pulpit to embarrass her because I love her. I'm as heterosexual as they get. And do you think that I would, like, how would I have come up when, when I'm in school and I've just experienced this? And now I'm flooded with confusion about who I am and what sexual preference I should have. And by the way, your sexual preference determines the center of who you are. What? No, it doesn't. Like, where, how far off the rails? How confused and destroyed would my life have been if I was raised in the current climate, having gone through that? We have no idea what the consequences of our actions are doing. We're just not smart enough. Einstein comes up with a relativity. Big deal. God wrote relativity. Return to his moral laws. They are good and right. They lead to life. Amen? I mean, in the case of abortion, our wisdom says we don't care about Down syndrome kids. Let's get rid of them. 90% of Down syndrome children are aborted in Canada. I'm aware that we have a child in this room right now. You know, a couple years ago, Mike and I, we went to the YMCA. There's a group of 30 Down syndrome folks having a great time, all laughing in the YMCA, YMCA foyer. <laughs> and I remember said, saying to Micah, take a close look. You'll, ne- you'll never see this again in your life. What's next? I find it awfully inconvenient to raise a child with ADD or or oppositionalness. You know what the favorite word in my house right now is? No. Don't say no, say yes. No. Is that next? Because I'm telling you, in Canada, in Ontario, right now, we have sex-selective abortion where we're killing girls because they're inconvenient. We're going our own ways. We're pursuing our own fulfillment and our appetites. And this is not wisdom, folks. Psalm 111. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever. Amen? Can I get an amen? So we see that God is the creator, and he's smart, he's brilliant, he's unimaginably brilliant, and he's a good lawgiver. But the psalm's not done with us. He wants us to see something else, maybe even something more glorious, and we'll turn to that now. The God whom we trust is also the redeemer. Verse 9. He sent redemption to his people. He commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. So what does this word redeemer mean? I mean, we ought to know. Our church is named after it, right? Redeemer City Church. What does it mean? Anybody know? Shout it out. And then I'll talk it in the microphone so the guys online hear it. What does it mean to be redeemer? Savior. Savior. Yep. Anybody else? Purchaser, right? This is this is a financial term. It's a marketplace term. It means to buy back, to be purchased out of slavery. Without question, 
Psalm 111, the writer wants us to see that God is the buyer back of the slaves. He's the redeemer. He wants us to remember his saving work. Okay? And in the case of Psalm 11, he's writing before Christ. So what redemption story is he referring to? Shout it out. The Exodus. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Dear Christian brothers and sisters, this is more than just God's business to redeem. It's his identity. It flows out of who he is. He is the freer of the captives. God yesterday, today, and the same forever. W.S. Plumer, we we call him Big Beard in our house because the the book is about that fat. (laughs) We went through the Psalms over the course of the pandemic. Big Beard, and he's got this giant righteous beard. I love it. So Big Beard, W.S. Plumer says, the reference in this clause is no doubt to the redemption from Egypt. But that event in many ways foreshadowed forth eternal redemption by the Lamb of God. So living on this side of the cross, we see and experience the redemptive nature of God clearer than the psalmist did. Paul says in Ephesians, in him we have redemption through his blood. In him we're bought back from slavery by his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses, of our sins, according to the riches of his grace. He still redeems us from slavery and from the penalty of hell through the blood of Christ. And we need to see that in our psalm. There's no depth from which he cannot rescue. Amen? So, brother, sister in Christ, are you discouraged by ingrained sin right now? Is there one on your back that you just can't seem to shake? You've got to know that God's innate desire, his inmost character, is longing for you to be liberated. And know that he's the all-powerful creator of the universe. Do you think that his arm is really too short? You know, maybe like, get, get my mirror out, okay? I'm preaching this to myself, okay? Maybe like me, you're saying, Gary, oh, you don't understand how long this is going on for. Who's ever said that? Or, this pattern is so entrenched. Or, Gary, you don't understand how complicated this problem is. Or, Gary, so-and-so, they just won't change. They, they can't change. Or, Gary, you don't know my past. It's too much. Gary, you, you just don't understand. Well, brother and sister in Christ, I would, I would lovingly, imploringly say to you and say to me, you just don't, you don't understand who God is, I think. That's actually the problem. If you really listen to the psalm today and you ask yourself, you know, is, is this really the God in whom I trust? Is, this, is he really like this? Because he is. And you ask yourself, is my discouragement, is the root of that in unbelief? I just simply don't believe that God is smart enough, strong enough. And gosh darn it, he doesn't like me enough. Like, Really? that he can't solve, that he's too weak, that he can't manage your situation? I think that's why you need the psalm today. That's why I need it. Because I have heard each one of those statements said, or I've said them. And I need to constantly remind myself of who God is as an antidote to those faithless and diseased statements. 
There's a song out there that's been speaking to my soul, much like Psalm 11. It's called King by David Crowder and uh, Maverick City. Just let me get the guitar. Kidding. I'm not going to play the guitar. Listen to it. Should the day begin with fear? Should it end in suffering? With humble heart, I'll lift my voice and I'll sing. You're still the king. Why should I have any fear in a world I know that you hold? Because you've been faithful for all these years. I have confidence you're still on the throne. You're still the rock of ages, God over everything. Even when evil's raging, you're still the prince of peace. You're still good. You're still God. Even when it's falling apart. So I'm going to keep on trusting you are who you say you are. You are the king. Yes, you are. You are the king. Yes, you are. And I hope someday we sing that from this stage. But I wasn't going to spring it on Josh like so quick, right? Like, manuscript got done like Saturday morning. So all this is to say, Christian brother in darkness, sister under trial, remember who God is. He's the king, creator, all-powerful, lawgiver. He's the good lawgiver. He's keeping you on a path of blessing. His ways are right, and they... Say it. Come on, family foundations people. Your ways are right, and they... They lead to life. Okay? Psalm 111 telling us that same stuff. We've got to remind ourselves who God is. It supercharges our faith, gives comfort to our souls, and drives us to healthy dependence on him. So, psalmist not done with us, yes? Verse 10 wants to tell us how do we respond to this God. Verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have good understanding. His praise endures forever. I think... The psalmist is trying to tell us three things, right? Then they're right from the text. Fear the Lord, obey the Lord, and praise the Lord. So, fear. Super complex topic, but fear not. Fear not. I'm sure Levi will be drawing our attention back to this when we encounter Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira, who failed to fear the Lord, who thought they they could play God out. And they died. Our God is an awesome God in the old sense, the 12th century sense. Our our God is an awesome God, like a terrifying God, right? There's a lot to say on this topic. So let's start with a quote. This is the great thing about preparing messages in, in community. Pastor Paul really found a nice one for me. Thank you. It says this, The fear of the Lord is enjoined throughout Scripture, meaning it's written about over and over and over and over again in Scripture, demanding that God's people stand always in awe, appreciate his supremacy and greatness, fear the consequences of disobeying his will, and not lightly treat any aspect of their covenant relationship with him, lest the consequences be severe, yes, even fatal. Attempts on part of some in modern times to define fearing the Lord as merely respecting him distort the biblical evidence. I hope that nobody in this room thinks that the fear of the Lord is just respect. Merely respect. What the psalmist is saying, in light of his creative genius, his power, in light of his moral superiority, in light of his redemptive acts, we should fear him. Listen to what Jesus says. Do not fear 
those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That word fear is the Greek phoibos, from which we get phobia. It does connote some elements of respect and reverence, absolutely, but it also means terror, folks, and we can't miss that. The author of Hebrews says, again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Make no mistake, friends, fearing God is not merely respecting him. It's fear, pure and simple. God has the power and the moral imperative to judge and punish the wicked, even unto death. And therefore, the psalmist warns us and encourages us, reminding us to fear the Lord, that it's the beginning of wisdom. It starts there. That's where wisdom starts. That word beginning is the same Hebrew word that's used in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It means foundational. Not just the origin, but foundational. Okay, The foundation of wisdom is to fear God, to, to respect, to be in awe, to obey. It starts there. I, I can tell you that from my personal walk. I, I sometimes am concerned. I've got four kids. They're, all, they're, they're raised in a Christian home. There's one of them right there. Look at she's so beautiful. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, th- they've never known a time apart from the Lord. Praise the God. Praise the Lord, right? I was not raised in a Christian home. Like I said, I was raised in a safe, loving home. I had mom and dad who loved me. Dad did all kinds of stuff for me. My mom served me unbelievably. I loved my parents. But they weren't Christians, and they still aren't. So pray for them. But I was not born a Christian in the sense of organic birth into a, in a Christian home, okay? My, my dad taught me about God in the sense of some kind of metaphysical genius, creative power, blah, blah, blah. And so I was a theist. I believed in God at an early age, and, and I worshipped a creator very early on. Like, when I was 16, I had this little kind of altar set up with uh, bricks and stuff, and I had, like, incense on it, and I was reading books about Hinduism and Buddhism and trying to find God. And, uh, and I, I, so I worshipped, I respected, I, I loved even, I, I was enjoying creation, looking at all this stuff. But I wasn't a Christian. You know, and I, and I didn't become a Christian until one ingredient came. And that's when I was aware of and afraid of the consequences of my sin. And if you don't believe me, believe John Bunyan. He's smarter than me. Okay? Pilgrim's Progress, dude. He says, there's not, though there is not always salvation where there is fear of hell. So some people can be afraid of hell and they're not saved. Okay? He's saying that. To be sure, there is no salvation where there is no fear of God. And I, and I sometimes think about my kids. Do, do they fear the, the Lord enough? Are they acquainted with their sin enough? Because they've not had life apart from him and been stung by their stupid. You know what I'm saying? Fear of the Lord, terror of his judgment is necessary for, for, for salvation. It's foundational. Okay? And if our evangelism lacks a convincing argument for, for the fear of the Lord, because we're talking about God's love all the time, and we should, God's love is great, don't get me wrong. But if, we, if we're lopsided, if we don't talk about the fear of the Lord, maybe that's why our evangelism's weak. 
It's the beginning of wisdom. So fear the Lord and teach others to, be, to do so. I think the psalmist is trying to tell us that. Also, the psalmist is telling us, obviously, obey the Lord. Verse 10, all those who practice it have good understanding. Okay? Those who practice wisdom do life on the foundation of the fear of the Lord, and they'll naturally want to do as well. Listen to what St. Augustine says in, in, uh, three, in the 3rd century um, A.D., ancient wisdom. He who has filial fear of the Lord, that's like a fatherly fear of the Lord, tries to do his father's will. Different is the fear of servants or slaves. Slaves fear the penalty. Children fear the love of the father. We are children of God. Let us fear him from sweetness of charity, from sweetness of agape, from sweetness of love, and not from bitterness of dread. I think that's wise. That is wisdom right there. So fear him in the good sense that a, good, that a child fears a good father because it leads to obedience because, remember, obedience is for your own good. Remember, all his precepts are trustworthy. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Anybody need their soul revived right now? The testimony, the laws of the Lord, testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise and simple. Anybody need some wisdom? Moreover, by keeping them, these commands, your servant is warned, and in keeping them, there is great reward. David's saying, obedience keeps us out of the pit of sin and misery. We're warned. I love what John Calvin says on the same topic. Nothing's more powerful to overcome temptation than the fear of the Lord. Godly fear encourages obedience. But David says more. He says, not only do we avoid the pit, he says, obedience is the path to blessing. In keeping them, there is great reward. God's ways are right and... Oh, that's weak. Come on. God's ways are right and they lead to life. Right? Amen. Consider what Jesus' opening strategy is to the Sermon on the Mount. The Beatitudes. Right? Blessed is the poor in spirit. Blessed is the one who mourns. Blessed is the meek. Blessed is he who is hungry and thirsty. In those are all implied imperatives, implied commands, saying that if you do this, your life is blessed. It's happy. Why? Because there's reward for obedience. In this case... The poor in spirit get the kingdom of heaven. The one who mourns is comforted. The meek receives an inheritance. And the one who's hungry and thirsty gets their belly full of righteousness. Okay, there's reward. I hope Marianne has my mathematical equation up on screen. Okay? The psalmist is really just putting this together. Is it up there? Yeah. Fear plus obedience equals blessing. That's, good. That's a good thing to file away. You can write that in the margins. Finally, the psalmist commends us to do one last thing, and that's praise the Lord, because that is the appropriate response to the God who created the universe, who created good moral laws. Verse 1 starts, Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. And verse 10 says, His praise endures forever. This ought to be the response of every believer to the realities of God as creator and redeemer. So that's what we're going to do, Redeemer. We're going to praise him. And we're going to praise him intelligently in light of what we've learned today. Praise him for his wondrous works, verses 1 to 4. 
Praise him for the beauty that you see camping. Praise him for the complexity of the majesty of the stars and the heavens. Let me ask you, when was the last time you were still? Let's get really practical. Last night, Micah says to me, Dad, come on out. And we went outside. Maybe it was the night before. The stars were unbelievable. And he says, I haven't seen the stars for months. Why do we do that? Because we're too busy to praise. We're too busy to be still. So if we're going to respond in praise, make time, be still. Students, praise them in your studies. I mean, this should come really naturally if you love science, if you love the natural world. This should just flow out of you so easily. But do it intentionally. Study hard, figure out how all these things work, and praise him that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Praise him for his redemptive works. Praise him that he saved you from your sin, that you are going to a place of security. Praise him that he liberated you from sin, from repetitive, habitual, entrapped, ingrained, entrenched sin. And if you're not out of it yet, praise him that he is strong enough to get you there. Praise him for provision of daily bread, verse 5. Don't take that for granted. Praise him for his good laws. We spent a lot of time on that today. His ways are right. They lead to life. And praise him for his constancy. You're still the rock of ages. God over everything. Even when evil rages, you're still the prince of peace. You're still good. You're still God. Even when it's falling apart. So I'm going to keep on trusting. You are who you say you are. Yes, you're the king. So know who your God is. Remember who your God is and respond to who your God is. Remember, respond. I think that's a great way to read any of the Psalms. Remember he's large and in charge. Remember he's large. He created everything. Remember he's in charge. He made good moral laws. Remember he's the redeemer, that he forgives and purchases you out of the slavery of sin. And in light of that, respond with godly, holy fear, Respond with happy obedience and respond with a life of praise. Amen. Call the worship team up.